Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, Wednesday, February the 1st, 2023. We've made it to February. The world hasn't blown up, and we see the first shoots, at least on the West Coast in California, where I'm talking to you from, of spring, although the news isn't particularly good, particularly uh, out of Ukraine. Um, the New York Times reports that uh, heavier Russian attacks suggest the opening moves of a new offensive, perhaps as a reflection of um, the earliest shoots of spring. One wonders what kind of military story 2023 will bring on the on in, in terms of the, of the russian war in ukraine um the allies remain split over fighter jets for ukraine they're fierce fighting in bakhmut uh, one of the stories of 2023 will be whether the allies quote unquote the allies and particularly the germans will unite in terms of western approach to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukraine continues to clean its own house. Lots of anti-corruption measures ahead of the EU summit. Uh, it's an interesting story in itself. Uh, over the last year, uh, in terms of the war in Ukraine, I've used the Central Un European University as a resource for learning what's happening. It was based in Budapest. The campus is now relocated to Vienna, we've done a number of shows with Central European uh, University academics. My old friend Michael Ignatiev, who was the rector there for a while, uh, spoke to me uh, in the spring last year about why we can't take the nuclear option off the table. Uh, two other academics, Masek Kizilowski, a Polish academic, and Ina Melianikowski, uh, spoke to me earlier about the West's moral failure in Ukraine. Um, and then uh, uh, Kizilowski came on the show uh, in December of last year, uh, talking darkly about how uh, he fears 2023 could mark a, a nuclear apocalypse. So, so far, so good, at least in February. No nuclear apocalypse yet piece of promising news out of the Central University, uh, Central European University, is their initiative with what they call an invisible university for Ukraine. It's a, a spirited, optimistic project, which um, is encapsulating many of the uh, liberal educational principles of the Central University, founded, of course, by George Soros. And my guest today on the show, Balaj uh, Trecheni is a professor of history at the Central University, a Central European University, and uh, also one of the spirits behind, one of the intellectual spirits behind uh, the Invisible University. He's joining us from Budapest. Um, ba uh, Balash, welcome. Uh, before we get to the Central, uh, before we get to the Invisible University, uh, what's your take on the current situation in Ukraine? What's your, I don't want to make this a conversation about that. We want to talk about the invisible university, but what's your broad take on the state of affairs on February 1st, 2023? 
Well, I'm obviously not a military expert, so I can hardly judge. Right. Uh, no, 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 no. I, 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 yeah, my question was not yeah, as sure. a military expert, more on the on the political yeah. and the diplomatic and the moral front. Yeah, so I, I think my feeling is that that I mean there are of course multiple levels and and it depends on where which front line are we looking at? Are we looking at let's say the Ukrainian internal dynamics as against uh, uh, the kind of pressure coming from Russia? Are we looking at the international support and lack thereof? Uh, I mean, are we looking at let's say the the kind of Russian internal developments, which are even harder, I think, to to uh, kind of describe because we barely know what is the internal dynamic now. So I think probably these factors are all coming some, somehow together and they are quite hard to, uh, how to say, dissect. But I mean, what was interesting to talk to to the students, uh, in, in fact, and that that is probably the closest I could get to, uh, uh, to, to the dynamics, is that they were very much telling that there is a certain kind of fear uh, of the society that that somehow the the, the kind of full-scale attack is getting even more full-scale now yes yeah? so i mean like there are there are people who are kind of feeling more and more that this is this relative uh, so I, I mean nobody questions at least from the from the uh, ukrainian colleagues whom i have nobody questions that ultimately ukraine will prevail but how to bridge the current situation to the final victory is, is of course very very hard for even them to imagine although it's kind of consensual like nobody would ever say that you know there will be a draw or something like that but but what exactly it entails and what kind of what amount of suffering what amount of human cost it entails it's 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 very hard to judge and it's i have to also say that like now I, I, it was the first time when i really face this that almost everybody whom i whom i met now among the students and colleagues has at least one close relative on the front yes which was probably not the or not probably but surely not the case let's say six months ago so it's also clear that there is a kind of mobilization and a kind of uh, rotating the ukrainian society uh, uh, into the front line is also taking place and that of course means that more or less everybody is carrying the burden i mean like it's not like that there is a professional army somewhere there fighting it is basically in everybody's household this war yes so i mean like it's it's i think a bit different situation than in the beginning even though obviously in the beginning the uh, uh, immediate threat of being killed by bombardment or anything was higher than now but i think people now are affected in a different way and of course also the the huge out migration is a very important factor i mean like we are having different numbers but i think there are estimates of nine million people uh dislocated and i mean that also has a huge impact yeah. on uh, this is you know it's doubly chilling obviously what you're saying is chilling in it in, in its own right but also so, so it's we feel in america i mean i can't speak on behalf of all americans of course but i think america is is very detached from that th th that's another story let's talk uh balaj about the the invisible university for ukraine it was launched in the spring of 2022 tell me about it the the ideas behind it and your involvement yeah, so basically this was uh, somehow an emergency initiative, uh, but it was not coming from nowhere. I mean, even the name indicates that there is a tradition, I mean, uh, uh, of even going back to the 19th century of this kind of uh, non-regular educational initiatives trying to face uh, challenges of either dysfunctional states or autocratic states or uh, kind of uh, some sort of situation where normal universities... Yeah, you've called it uh, in another piece... Uh... 
uh, I think you were quoted as um, a dissident academic model for the yeah. US. I mean, like this goes back to the actually to the 19th century. Um, Eastern European different initiatives trying to create this kind of uh, uh, tradition. And then, of course, in the 1970s and 80s, as you probably know, there was this model of flying universities uh, uh, in, in the case of uh, Czech, Polish intelligentsia and Hungarian also trying to offer an alternative to the kind of ideologically contaminated official educational system and kind of creating East-West dialogue through this informal educational networks. And then in the 1990s, there was also this tradition of invisible colleges that were basically trying to convert this tradition into the more or less free market of educational uh, initiatives. Some of them were actually supported by the Soros Foundation in the 90s. So are you, um, so is the, the invisible university, is it using Central European university resources to help displaced Ukrainian students? Is that what it is? Well, I mean, it's a bit even more complicated. So basically, when we were uh, dislocated, uh, as as you mentioned, uh, in, from from Budapest, then we were thinking a lot of how to actually uh, provide some sort of kind of uh, education for those students who will not necessarily come to see you, but who are coming from countries uh, where indeed there was a kind of state hacking of the educational system and all that. So we were originally thinking about this model. We called it hybrid. Uh, education for hybrid uh, regimes, not so much for Ukraine, because Ukraine seemed to be a fairly functional democracy, but actually countries like Turkey or Hungary or Poland or Azerbaijan, yeah, so, or, or Russia and, or Belarus. So originally we were thinking about this model of fusing uh, online and offline components for students who are actually left out from... Yeah, it's uh, interesting, Balash, that you would put Hungary and Turkey in the same pot as, as, well, as I mean, Russia. By, by now, I think in some ways it's it's fairly similar. I mean, of course, EU membership means that I don't have to, you know, hide and I'm not likely to be killed after this interview. But, uh, but in terms of, you know, educational institutions being completely uh, controlled and uh, both politically and also economically kind of uh, smashed by the regime. It's actually quite similar, in fact. So so basically, we were thinking about this. And then when the war started, then we thought that, OK, let's think about how this uh, um, model, which we were theoretically inventing but didn't really uh, start to put into practice, could be actually converted into uh, the actual situation. And we tried to mobilize all our intellectual and also human resources to help Ukrainians. And actually, we drew on CU resources i'm in part most of the funding came from the open society uh, uh, university uh, uh, network which is uh, connected of course to uh, our university and open society yeah, and again this is a soros that's, initiative that's but we also got quite uh, diversified help from uh, other institutions like german state funding through uh, from university of vienna and also MacArthur uh, funding and others. So, I mean, basically what we found is that there were quite many uh, directions fr from different contexts were interested in somehow trying to help students. And what we offered in contrast to the usual initiatives, I mean, usual initiatives were basically offering place for some refugees, yes? So, I mean, like the typical model was that, hey, we are a good German or American or whatever Dutch university, we have five places, we can host the first five Ukrainians whom whom we can find, like, like scholars or students. And of course, these are also admirable 
uh, initiatives because they help those five people. But what we were thinking about is that there is much more dislocation and much more dispersion of the actual student and also scholarly uh, uh, body than to kind of just take them out one by one into uh, institutions and we also thought about for example the boys who couldn't leave the country yes? so i mean like it's not it's not a full solution to kind of offer in every european university three places for three ukrainians and we were trying to also to create a framework which brings together students and professors who are actually dislocated in different places of course in ukraine dislocation is not just leaving the country it's also internal dislocation yes so like eastern ukrainian students are now residing in western ukraine uh, some of the uh, um, you know, uh, students who were coming from occupied territories are, are in other places. So basically, there are there are many people, and of course, many of the institutions, universities, cease to operate as offline institutions. Some of them preserved online programs. Some of them, I mean, Western Ukrainian institutions are still having uh, on-campus teaching. But I mean, many of the students were actually basically losing the opportunity to study. So we thought to kind of create a framework that caters for these different groups and also reconnects them to their own teachers uh, who are actually also dislocated in different European, Western European, Eastern Central European and other uh, capitals, uh, cities, universities and institutions. But there was one more idea behind it, like not just to reproduce the Ukrainian educational system in this kind of online version, because that's what can be done by Ukrainian universities themselves, but to con reconnect basically the Ukrainian colleagues and the Ukrainian students to transnational intellectual networks. And that's where CEUs, I think, DNA, so to say, intellectual DNA. Right. Came so, to. for example, you you featured uh, 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 Alexandra uh, Matvichuk, a Nobel Prize uh, Peace uh, recipient, uh, members of the European Parliament. What are all these people doing? Are they teaching one-on-one -on -one with students? Are they giving well, well, in, in the, in Are the, they accessing their resources for the students? Yes, yeah, so one, what we started like in, in April was basically creating courses where every, in every uh, online courses originally, where every course was actually having a curator or one or two curators, usually one Ukrainian and one non-Ukrainian colleague. And they were actually recruiting teachers to, to have thematic uh, lectures, which were like once a week. Uh, uh, for students who were kind of coming from all these different places. And basically the idea was that they are actually creating a dialogue in front of the students. So, so they are not lecturing, they are not telling uh, you know, the master narrative, Western or uh, Ukrainian master narrative, they are actually creating an open-ended situation where Ukrainian scholar and non-Ukrainian scholar are kind of trying to frame problems and have also a conversation, learn from each other. And this learning, uh, dialogical learning process was extremely engaging for the students because they could see that there is no just a kind of well-established uh, you know, story that they have to replicate, but they are actually, they see ideas emerging in the very moment of these lectures and then basically then uh, in in the summer we try to combine this with uh, summer school uh, where we brought the most motivated students and also those who could actually leave the country to budapest to the budapest cu campus uh, and also replicated this in viv for mainly for boys who couldn't leave the country so basically we were having a video connection and they were watching some of our sessions we were uh, discussing with them through uh, uh, zoom but also they had their own program in balash um balash uh, there's a for people watching um radio free europe the old american cold war station um 
has a headline about Ukrainian students continuing their studies at the Invisible University. Um, Russian critics of this, if they were watching, uh, I, I don't suppose they would be, but if they were, they might say something like, well, this is just back to the Cold War, American Soros-supported anti-Russian education. How would you respond to that? Well, I mean, it's it's obviously, uh, I mean, we had uh, a certain kind of dilemma, for example, what to uh, uh, what to do with uh, Russian institutions? I mean, it's not only we, but of course all European academic networks. And and uh, we were making a statement that we are not working with state institutions in any way. So, like, no Russian universities are are partners in this initiative. But it's very important to mention that one of the most enthusiastic subgroup of uh, uh, of mentors that we have in this initiative is actually Russian. Uh, uh, born Russian citizen PhD students, many of them studying at CU, some of them in other places, who from the very beginning expressed that they are actually not with Putin, but with the suffering Ukrainians, and they are willing to offer their help. And actually, what we we in the beginning we were very very kind of scared that this will not work out, that that there will be uh, you know kind of rejection on the part of the students, and and we had to create uh, mentoring groups where we were matching Russians and non-Russians. So because we also have a mentoring, actual PhD students are mentoring the students in small groups. So in addition to these lectures that I was describing, we also have this mentoring component that where mainly, as I said, uh, graduate students helping their younger peers. And these Russian students melted, these uh, mentors melted absolutely unproblematically into this uh, cooperation. Ukrainian students didn't bother whether they are Russians or not as soon as they understood what these guys are saying. Yes, And that for us, it was a very, very important experience because it also helped to overcome for the Ukrainians themselves this dehumanizing narrative that Russians by default are kind of enemies, that every single Russian is an enemy. You probably know that there is a huge uh, uh, debate in the U Ukrainian public sphere. <laughs> I think the metaphor that is usually used is this, there are no good Russians. And we also agree that it's very problematic on many ways to kind of create a framework where we would force people to have a dialogue. I think this dialogue has to wait until the war is over as an institutional dialogue. But in human sense, in human interaction, it's possible to create situations, provided that the Russian uh, uh, involved Russian colleagues are making it very clear where they stand. And what we were very lucky to experience is that we had many Russian colleagues. And also in the lecture series, we had actually Russian uh, citizens who were mostly also leaving the country, of course, uh, at various points, but who were actually very generously offering their knowledge and uh, conversational and teaching capacity to to involve these Ukrainian students. So actually what we try to do is exactly not to replicate some sort of kind of ethnicization of the conflict, also go beyond uh, uh, the, if you want, the, the, this Cold War binaries, but at the same time make it very, very clear and create, a, if you want, a safe place for, for the students not to feel that we are imposing on them anything. If we ask the students whether they are willing to have a mentor who is Russian. If the student said, that I don't want, we, we change the mentoring team. So we wanted to create a feeling for the students that we are not imposing on them some sort of kind of top-down understanding. Right. Uh, Balash, you're a, your day job is a intellectual historian. You've written a lot of stuff. You've contributed to a couple of wonderful books, two volumes of a history of modern political thought in East Central Europe. Um, you're talking to me from Budapest, a city drenched in history. 
Uh, you yourself are drenched in history. This conflict is, for better or worse, drenched in history. Is there anything new about the issues coming up here? We talked about the Invisible University reviving a dissident academic model, uh, which existed um, in, in, in the Soviet period, in the post-Soviet period. Um, in an intellectual sense, are the issues being debated, nationalism versus internationalism, authoritarianism versus individual rights, anything new here, Balash, or is it just, if you like, uh, a return to history? Well, I mean, I think uh, return is probably too optimistic. I think like history will with us even if it was declared to be dead or declared to be uh, finished or uh, completed. But I think it's also very, very important that, that there are this kind of, uh, in a way, uh, underground traditions that are time to time popping up, popping up again and again. I mean, like, as I said, like 1970s dissident culture was reverting back to late 19th century or interwar intellectual models, uh, uh, interwar modernist projects were coming back in the 1970s and 1980s. So I mean, like, uh, and, and I think there, this kind of dynamic of uh, rethinking your own tradition critically and engaging with it is, I think, a very important element of this Central European intellectual tradition. I mean, we describe this in our book as what is called critical tradition. Yes. So, I mean, like there is a kind of critical tradition which is critical of the local uh, uh, nationalist or nation-centered master narratives and which, uh, you know, features this in uh, usually quite transnational intellectual figures like from Czeslav Miłosz to Dani Lokish who have been, uh, you know, kind of engaging with their own tradition. Miłosz, of course, being Polish, Kish being uh, Serbian, right? Yeah, Kish was a uh, Hungarian Jew with a uh, father and Montenegrin mother. Did he grow up, uh, didn't he grow up in Serbia? He grew up in, yeah, in, in, in Yugoslavia but he had a very Central European background, and he describes this Central European... So, so is this a so to, is... uh, are we returning, um, Balash, not that we ever left uh, all this Central Europe, um, the, the, the traditions of Central Europe? We had a, a show last year with another of your colleagues, Dorit Geva, um, on uh, Viktor Orban's Ordon Nationalist uh, Hungary. You mentioned in earlier in the interview that you're unlikely to go to jail be, through this interview because uh, Hungary is a part of the EU. What's happening in Hungary right now? Is there any kind of backlash against Orban or does he continue to nationalize? And, and how is he surviving? Is he walking this tightrope on Ukraine? I know that the polls have come out quite strongly against the Russians, whereas Orban is much more uh, ambivalent, it seems to me. Well, I mean, like part of it seems to be almost irrational because I mean, like in a society which has still, uh, you know, no, at least theoretically has been uh, carrying the memory of 1956 and there has been a quite strong popular, if you want, uh, anti-Russian feeling. It's it's very hard to... Uh, yeah, I mentioned uh, Balash, you dropped 56 as if everyone knows about it. What happened in yeah. 1956 yeah, in 1956 Hungary? is the Hungarian, uh, in a way anti-Stalinist revolution, which has ideologically very complicated uh, backgrounds. So which I, I was crushed say, by the Russians. Which was crushed by Soviet tanks, basically. And and after 56, there has been this kind of, you know, Gulash communist 
consolidation of of the kind of softer uh, socialist regime but nevertheless the society was kind of carrying this trauma very strongly i mean like it was a very very traumatic experience so so it was very hard to imagine that actually the, the society can actually be reframed as a pro pro russian anti western uh, society but but it seems that that we hacking the media and basically kind of flooding the public sphere with basically russian uh, uh, fabricated alternative reality, it, it really kind of uh, impacts the society very heavily. Although I have to say that when you look at European comparative statistics, it always turns out that Italy or Greece actually, if you look at the whole society, that Italian or Greek society or even Slovak society is actually more pro-Russian than a Hungarian. Of course, it's not true for the government. So in Hungary, it's very much top-down. I mean, like it, it doesn't so much come from popular demand to support Russia, it comes more or less from kind of people who are actually running. the. Can you see the Ukrainian, I mean, is, is, is the war in Ukraine, is it visible on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis on the streets of Budapest? Are the streets well, it, it, Ukrainian it refugees still? There are, there are quite many ref, re, Ukrainian refugees and actually Hungarian civil society, as you probably know, because of the 2015-16 uh, uh, refugee crisis, which, which Orban used to kind of basically demolish uh, demonize the refugees and kind of demolish the whole system of protection of uh, refugees. Basically, Hungary was the only country, I think, in East Central Europe that had no infrastructure whatsoever to deal with uh, a new wave of refugees because basically Hungary closed its borders. In Do you think, uh, Balash, that this war, this Russian invasion of Ukraine might bring the crisis of authoritarianism in East Central Europe to a head? Well, I mean, like, uh, uh, to a certain extent, there is, I mean, it also depends on how strong the, uh, you know, kind of cooperation of uh, basically Western uh, uh, political systems, because I mean, like, in itself, you know, I mean, as we know, Orban uh, is a perfect crisis manager, manager in the sense, as, as I alluded to this 2015-16 context as well, that he, he actually creates a crisis out of uh, a, a complex situation, and then he says that he's pitching himself as the kind of uh, yeah, doctor it's, a, it's a Trumpian uh, strategy it's, or yeah, so it's, you, it's, it's not like, unique to Orban, although he's very good at yeah, it. He sure. seems more he's probably than even more. He's probably even more resilient than Bolsonaro or, or uh, Trump, Certainly, is which isn't that hard. So, so basically, the point is that we are not sure at all whether if there is a kind of crisis, whether it serves him or undermines him, because his capacity to kind of spin it is is proven to be quite... Uh, Balash, uh, what do you make of some American conservatives who have relocated to Budapest? One comes to mind, uh, uh, Rod Dreher, a sort of neo-fascist Christian American thinker. He was on the show, a very distasteful character. Um, what do you make of some of these people relocating to Budapest and trying to learn the uh, learn the Orban playbook? Uh, Steve Bannon seems to be doing a similar thing. Yeah, well, I mean, like uh, if not Hungarian, because it's too hard to learn in, in any case. But uh, uh, basically, what I what I uh, see is that uh, the Orban government was trying to break out of its uh, diplomatic isolation, which was caused by its kind of anti-EU policies by kind of creating a bridge between, uh, and I'm not talking about last year, I'm talking about the last five years, creating a bridge between the Russian uh, radical anti-Western discourse and the American neoconservative or radical conservative networks. And they were pitching uh, anti-Western uh, anti-Western discourses of, uh, you know, kind of against the 
you know, Western supposedly leftist uh, uh, public culture. So basically, Orban was very skillful to create a bridge between different stakeholders, ideological stakeholders who are who were all somehow uh, uh, upset with liberal democracy, and Hungary became this kind of Disneyland of a kind of alternative of uh, of this kind of uh, uh, you know Western liberal democracy. Yeah, but it's, it's the Disneyland that Umberto Eco described as um, hyper reality, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's completely hyper real because the very same people, of course, uh, you know, would be very surprised. Even these American neoconservatives would be very surprised to know that basically all the state who would still believe in some sort of economic competition, probably that, you know, uh, in Hungary, almost all the state tenders go to the, you know, best friend of the prime minister. I mean, even for an American neoconservative, that would be too much. Yeah. So, I mean, like they just take the reality that they want to take, which is basically this kind of... Exactly. When when Drea was on my show, he was fetishizing sort of the neo-fascist Catholic interwar movements in East Central Europe. One thing that has changed, uh, Balash, is the role of Germany, of course, in the region. Lots of criticism, as always, of the Germans. Um, one piece I read suggests that history will judge Germany for holding back tanks from Ukraine. Germany has always been more ambivalent about direct military intervention. What's your take on the German role here and German public opinion? You're not far from Germany in Budapest. Well, I mean, I think for some times, uh, I think Orban actually believed that by blocking European help, he is actually fulfilling the the subliminal or the secret wishes of the German political elite. So, and we were also kind of suspecting that that there is a certain kind of you know secret su- support for him coming from certain angles of the German political elite to that they cannot openly block it. But if Orban blocks it, then it's after all not that bad because then they can put the blame on him. But at the same time, secretly, they get what they wanted. So, I mean, there was a kind of scenario like this. I mean, it also seems that step by step after all the German political uh, um, elite is, is, is going towards more serious and more is the war, has it shaken the old German left out of its pacifism? Well, I think it's, I would even be a bit more, uh, how to say, uh, ambiguous whether it's left or right, because I also see that part of the conservative uh, business elite was actually having extremely good uh, Russian connections. In fact, the middleman between Russia and uh, and Germany and Hung- and the Orban government who happened to be a guy called Mangold who who was actually connected to CDU and was yeah and they uh, made was, uh, and the old Social Democratic leader they've all made significant fortunes. Well, it's not only Schröder, it's not only the it's not only Gazprom buying uh, Schröder more or less, but it was also the on the conservative side. So I mean, my feeling What's is your rather message that, from I mean, you're not speaking on behalf of Central Europe or Budapest or even the Central European University, but what message would you send your would send uh, your 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 German liberal colleagues about the situation? Well, I mean, I, I think... To, I don't even know if you def- define yourself as a liberal, so excuse that word. Well, I mean, like the, the, the German colleagues to whom I'm talking to are more or less having the same 
uh, understanding that I have. I mean, these are mostly, of course, historians, colleagues of mine, and they have historical, you know, like perspective on this, and they more or less share the same idea that in this situation, there is not much else to do than try to help Ukraine, because Ukraine is fighting not only for Ukraine, it is fighting uh, also for European values. At the same time, of course, we all uh, think, I think we have to also pose questions, and that, that was actually a very interesting debate with the students uh, in this uh, winter school that we had of how, how far we should anticipate post-war developments. I mean, when we are talking about the war, we are not just talking about the war, we are also talking about the post-war, yes? For example, yeah. we were involving uh, in our sessions uh, scholars about Yugoslav uh, 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 wars, and they were talking about war crimes. And of course, the message they were passing is that war crimes are, of course, happening on both sides, usually. I mean, it's and I think, unfortunately, my guess will be that the future of and that that yeah, was a very, in Ukraine will be the future will be something that like was a very Bosnia, challenging issue for, that was a very challenging issue for the Ukrainian students because they were telling us also rightly so but it was a very interesting debate that okay guys why do you tell us that we have to anticipate that at some point we will commit war crimes because of course the whole reconciliation project mm -hmm. is predicated upon some sort of kind of confession that both sides commit certain kind yeah. of crimes. But, so, I mean, like, and of course, how, who are we to tell to these Ukrainian students or to the Ukrainian state that we are anticipating that at some point you will also have to confess that you committed guilt? Right. So, so Balaj, uh, Balaj, to end, um, you noted that you shared, you, I'm quoting you, European values. Some people in America might say, well, we share those too. What can Americans do? Bard College uh, on the East Coast, its president is also part of the Central European University Board, uh, um, so particularly committed to this, is providing full tuition scholarships to displaced Ukrainian students. I think that's enormously commendable. What else can Americans do to support what you're doing in Budapest, particularly in terms of the invisible university? So basically, I mean, like if you are asking what they can do to help our work, then I think what we are trying to do is that we are opening this kind of different courses and we are absolutely welcoming American colleagues to, you know, teach a class, teach. Uh, we are now opening a co uh, cooperation with Harvard colleagues who will have a master. We should do an interview, uh, Balaj. We should do a, a keynote interview series. That might be, I don't know whether, it well, might, well, I'm not but, sure if it'd be sufficiently academic or rigorous, but I'd be more than happy to help. It, it should be more like uh, about, you know, making people reflect on, on this from different angles. But I think uh, what, what they could do in general, I, I think there are two things. One is that not to try to take everybody out of the country. Yes, I mean, like, I think it's very nice to, to help people who are already dislocated, but to create a kind of hierarchy that we are only helping those who actually come to the United States or who are actually already in the United States is disfavoring very heavily those people who are actually neither able nor willing to get out. Yeah? So it's also very important to kind of invest into the institutions on the ground, into the colleagues who are actually not leaving the country and not to create this kind of first class, second class situation. And the other thing I'm usually telling to American uh, friends is that rather than trying to help Ukraine in general, uh, you know, they could adopt, so to say, uh, an institution, a department, a, a one uh, kind of, you know, local, uh, uh, smaller, um, you know, network, and they should actually develop bilateral uh, uh, interaction with them and try to help them to survive. Because, I mean, it doesn't make sense to flatten 
the help that everybody is just in general helping Ukrainians. I mean, it makes no sense. What you have to do is that if you are a department of sociology in California, try to find a department of sociology in Ukraine and try to have a kind of special relationship with them and try to help them survive and actually rebuild their intellectual capacities, not to take two guys out from uh, eastern Ukraine to California. I mean, the cost of bringing these two guys out is more or less the same than running a whole department back in Ukraine. Of course, those who are already out have to be helped. And there are also interesting ideas, by the way, how it would be possible, because there are also people who are kind of, you know, the usual situation is that they get short-term scholarships, and then they tell them that, okay, then survive on the local job market. And this is doubly dangerous. It's dangerous because they are flooding. They might flood the job market. In, like in Germany, you know, there are thousands of uh, Ukrainian academics now. I mean, if we just pour them on the German job market, it doesn't really help anybody. Yes, the question is, how is it possible to create kind of a resilient framework which helps them to, at some point, reintegrate into their own academic culture? And how is it possible, for example, to help them to actually keep in touch with their own Ukrainian students? It doesn't make much sense to kind of force a Ukrainian scholar to now become a specialist in Bavarian history just because happens to be in Bavaria. Yes, the question is, how do you fund institutional frameworks that are actually keeping this connection? What we try to do with this invisible Ukraine with our very modest uh, means is exactly to mediate between these stakeholders, not to kind of create artificial uh, trajectories, but kind of retain the connection between Ukrainian scholars and Ukrainian students, but mediate this through an interaction with uh, non-Ukrainian academic networks, because these non-Ukrainian academic networks also create an added value to this conversation. They are not just kind of helping, they are also part of this conversation and they are also learning and they are also making a certain kind of new perspective for the Ukrainian students about how to think about themselves, how to think about the war and how to think about the post-war reconstruction.